0: All right, y'all, so this morning we are going to do something a little bit different. We are going to have a topical sermon, and it's going to be in, out of 2 Timothy chapter 3. So a few weeks ago, whenever we were in Colorado with our high school students for camp, uh, one day we went on a hike, and so we get to the, like the midway point of this hike, and people stop, like we're stopping to rest and take pictures and stuff, and I'm standing there with a group of our students, and Nora says, Jake, ask me a question. It's like, well, what do you mean ask you a question? What kind of question? To which she replies, I don't know. Just ask me a question. So I fumble around. I'm like, I, I don't know, because everything that comes to my mind is sports questions. I'm like, she will one, not know, and two, not care. Um, so I finally am like, oh, I got one. Nora, what are the five solas? We'd gone over them in Sunday school a while back. I was like, let's see how well she does. And so she and Claire are there. They kind of team up together and got like four out of five. Now we do five out of five, I think. I'm pretty sure we could do it. Um, And so I was pretty happy with that. But I was wondering, like, if I were to ask each of you this morning, what are the five solas? How many could you list off? I won't put you on the spot, but I just want you to think about it. Some of you might be thinking, none. I don't know what you're talking about. And that's okay, too. These five solas are sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, solus Christus, and sola Dea Gloria, meaning scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. These solas, which are Latin, right? That's where we get our word solo from. These solas, they date back to the 16th century in the Protestant Reformation. This time when God raised up men who sought to reform the church or to bring its teachings more back in line with the teachings of the Bible. The reformers said that the scripture alone should be our only rule for faith and practice. Or maybe we could say our only guide for life and for belief. Now look, some things shouldn't stand alone, should they? Like, as Donna reminded me this morning, just now, by her laughing, my singing should never stand alone. There should never be a solo with just me, okay? I promise you that. Like, something shouldn't stand alone. But friends, the Bible, the Bible is one thing that should. This is what the Reformers called for. And, you know, this topic, this idea... That for a Christian, the Bible should be the only thing to guide our lives. It should be our only rule for faith and practice. This is, man, this is a topic, this is something that we as Christians should really consider. Do we actually believe that? Do we actually functionally live that way? Because everything that we teach, everything that we believe, it all needs to be rooted in the scripture. It needs to find its basis there. And so this morning, let's take a little bit of time and try and answer this question, why? Why? Why should the Bible alone guide our lives and beliefs? Why should it be our only rule for faith and practice? So here's the three things we'll consider. We'll consider what the Bible is, how we're to use it, and what it gives us. So we'll read verses 14 to 17 of 1 Timothy 3. Will you follow along with me as I read? It says there, "...but as for you, continue in what you have learned, and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings." which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Friends, these are the words of God from the mouth of God, and he has given them to us because he loves us, and his words, they are true. So, in 1956, the World Series was played between the New York Yankees and the then Brooklyn Dodgers. These teams had met in the World Series before, actually just the year before, and the Dodgers had won, so the, a- the Yankees are there for the rematch. They're looking to even the score. These lineups were full of names that, even if you're not a sports fan, they're full of names that you probably know. Names like Yogi Berra and Mickey Mantle and Whitey Ford and Sandy Koufax and Jackie Robinson. And on October 8th of 1956, these two teams met to play game five. The series is tied at 2-2. They're at Yankee Stadium, and Don Larson takes the mound in front of about 65,000 fans. And he throws what's known as a perfect game. So there's no hits, he doesn't hit any batters, there's no fielder errors, no walks, nothing like that. It's like 27 up and 27 down. You know, at this point in history now, there have been like over 235,000 Major League Baseball games played. And in all those games, there have only been 24 perfect games. One of them happened this year by another Yankee. Not that any of you care, but it did. But, but this one by Larson back in 56 remains the only perfect game that's ever been thrown in the World Series. Larson's game, man, like it was a great feat. And we attach this word perfect to his game. But you know, technically it's not perfect. Because despite the fact that he didn't give, give up any hits or walks or anything like that, he did throw some inerrant pitches. Like he threw balls that were outside of the strike zone. So yes, it was a perfect game. Though it still contained errors of some kind. You know, perfection is something that we as people, we really long for. We really desire. We want things to be perfect. But we know that in the world we live in, like, perfection is something that we just don't find except for in one place, and that is in our scriptures. The Bible is perfect, as our text tells us, because it is breathed out or inspired by God. And because God is perfect, so too His Word has to be. So when I say the Bible is perfect, or when theologians say that the Bible is perfect, it doesn't just mean that it is without errors. though it is that. The original manuscripts contain no errors, but it also means that it is complete or it is adequate. Wayne Grudem says it this way. He says perfection means the Bible contains everything we need God to tell us for salvation, for trusting Him perfectly, and for obeying Him perfectly. And you know, maybe this morning you're like, yeah, sure, I believe that. Sounds good. Everything I need to know for salvation, for trusting God perfectly, and obeying Him perfectly. But man, do you ever come to the Bible just kind of wishing it would tell you more about certain things? Do you ever wish when you read about the millennium, you're like, could you spell it out in black and white what that means and when exactly that's happening? Do you ever come and read and wonder, like, what, what was Jesus doing for those, those days he was in the tomb? Maybe you're like, I don't know. I don't, I've never thought about those things. You ever wondered what happened to the dinosaurs? Are you in that camp? All right, Like, maybe that's more you. Do you ever come to the Bible wishing it told you more about certain things? You know, often I think the reason... Um, that we come to the Bible, maybe sometimes kind of frustrated it doesn't tell us these things, is because we actually come to the Bible asking it to be something that it's not. The Bible is not a science book. The Bible is not like a code cracker for, okay, when's Jesus coming back exactly? And it's not like an exhaustive guide on things like angels and demons. We come to it often, though, it's like we want it to be that. We expect it to be that. And I think that's where some of our frustration comes from. We expect it to be something it's not. There will always be things we wish the Bible told us, that it just doesn't. But what Grudem is saying here is that while it doesn't tell us everything we might want to know, it does matter-of-factly tell us everything that we need to know, both about God and about ourselves. The Scriptures tell us who God is. It tells us that He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, that He is all-wise and all-holy and all-knowing and all-powerful and sovereign, or in control of everything. It not only tells us about God, but about us. It says, this is who you are. You are a person, just because you are a person. You were born in sin. That you are broken by sin. That your sin has severed your relationship with God. But it also tells us, this is how to be made right. This is how to be reconciled to Him. This is how you can be saved. It then goes on and says, once you have been reconciled, this is how you now live in right relationship with God. And not only God, but how to live in right relationship with yourself and with others, and even the world which God has put us in. So, a few months ago now, I guess, we were in Romans 1, right? As Mark's been preaching through Romans, we started in 1. And there, you know, we learned something. We learned that you can learn something, you can learn things about God, just by virtue of being alive in the world. That you can look out into the world and see that there is a power and a divine being. But y'all, apart from the Bible, you can't know what this divine being requires of you. You can't know how to be in right relationship with him. You must have the scriptures to do this. And our scriptures perfectly communicate this and many things to us. It tells us all we need to know. We look to God's word to discover who he is, who we are, and what he wants for us. Y'all, look, here's a question that we all have to answer for ourselves. Do you believe that the Bible is perfect? Do you believe that it is sufficient sufficient and adequate? Do you believe that it can do the things that 2 Timothy says it can? That it's good for all these things, for teaching and training and correcting and rebuking? You may think that's an odd question. It's like, well... I gave up my Sunday morning to be here, most of us of our own free will, right? Like, I chose to come here to a place where I knew, like, the Bible is going to be used throughout. What do you, what do you mean, do I, do I believe those things? You might find it an odd question, but I really don't think it is. Because even today, thousands of people will fill pews. And in their heart of hearts, if they were asked this question, you know what they would say? Nope. I don't think the Bible is actually perfect. I think that it does contain errors. I don't think that it's sufficient to answer all of the questions that I have about life. I don't believe it can give me the correction that I need. I don't believe it can train me in the ways that I think I need to be. I don't think it has the answers for all of life. Man, maybe that's you. Maybe if you're honest, like this is kind of where you're at. But I would ask you, if you don't believe that the Bible is this, then what is? Like, who or what in all of creation would you look to and say, well, this person or this thing is sufficient and adequate to answer the questions that I have? Is it a person or a book or a system of thought? You know, we don't speak this way, especially about people. We don't speak as though they're perfect. But you know, so often, this is functionally how we live looking to someone as though they have all the answers, that they should be followed no matter what they say? Maybe that's you. Or do you believe that there's nothing perfect in all of creation? And if that's you, man, I would ask, is that not a lonely place to be, a depressing place to be? Does it not make our world and even our very existence feel hopeless? Look, I realize this probably isn't most of us, Most of you are probably like, no man, I was was with you. Like, I think that the Bible is everything that you claim it is. I don't have these questions, but y'all, you know who does? Your friends, your neighbors, and the people that you go to work with. They wonder if the Bible really is these things you know as you seek to evangelize them as you seek to love them as Christ has as you seek to move towards them I would encourage you to ask them in conversation ask them these questions what do they think about God's word because as you ask these questions you will begin to see oh this is what they put their trust in this is where their hope lies or this is why they don't have hope because they have nothing as a sure and steady anchor for the soul do you know what they're looking for those answers They're looking for them somewhere because we all want answers. We all want someone or something that we feel like we can look to and it can be trusted. We look for answers. And you know what else we look for? We look for authority. We're all looking for an ultimate authority of some kind. And this is something else the Bible claims to be. It claims to be authoritative. In Isaiah 45, 18, God says, He is the Lord and there is no other. In Job 38 to 41, God speaks to Job and he lays out all the ways. He's demonstrated his authority in the world. In Isaiah 64, God says, I'm the potter, you're the clay. Or, I'm the creator and you're the created. In Psalm 100, God says, He has made us and we are his. Colossians 1 tells us, God has created all things and in him all things hold together. Y'all, do you know what these verses and countless others tell us? It's God telling us, Look, I'm not only the one who's created you, I'm the one who sustains you. God is telling us, look, because of this creator-created dynamic that I have established, I have authority over you. And the Bible, God's Word, this is how He's communicated it to us. The Bible's not authoritative because there were some really good, smart dudes who wrote it a couple thousand years plus ago. That's not where the authority comes from. The authority comes because... It is from God. Second Peter 1 tells us this. It says, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Look, the Bible was penned by human authors. But God is the grand author behind every word. And because He has authored it, it carries with it this ultimate inherent authority. Y'all, the Bible gets the last word on everything. If you don't believe the Bible to be true, if you don't believe it to be authoritative, do you know who you're ultimately saying has the authority? It's you. Saying, I, I got this. I am the master of my own domain. Do you know, if you're determining truth, you have to do so with eyes wide open. Knowing that, you're being influenced by a thousand things that you're not even aware of. You're being influenced by the friends that you spend time with, by the TV you watch, by the music you listen to, by just the culture that you live in. Move somewhere else, and in 10 years, look back and see how those views have changed. If you are the one who gets to decide who has the ultimate say for you, if you're the one who is making the choice, like this is the person that should be trusted, then you will put your faith in someone and you will see them fail and decide that, oh, I guess they can't be trusted. Or you will face problems that those people are silent on and you'll be left, okay, what do I do now? If you trust in a system of thought or a system of government or any person, all of these will prove to be limited and they will fail you and you'll you'll be back at square one looking for someone else to place your trust in. But you know what you, you, know all of us usually go to if we are not looking to the Scriptures to tell us what is right? Most of us let our hearts decide for us what is right. Our hearts, the thing Jeremiah says, are deceitful above all else. And we know that, right? Like, how many times have you followed your heart, your emotions, your gut, made a decision based on it, and looked back like, oh that was the wrong one. Y'all, if you, if we as people decide for ourselves what is true, we will intellectually engage with issues only to decide and see clearly that we at times have gotten it wrong. It's not just, I'm not saying it's true for some people, y'all. It's true for everybody. True for the first people and it's true for every person that has ever walked the earth since. Look, Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, I'm not a Christian, I don't really care. But no matter where you fall on the scale of belief, Christian or not, I encourage you this morning to honestly ask this question. Do you believe that the Bible is perfect and sufficient and adequate to guide your approach to this life, your thoughts about the life that is to come, your relationship with God, yourself, the other people, and even the world that He has created? And if you don't, then be honest with yourself and ask, where are you looking and saying, this is sufficient, this is adequate, this is the place or the person or the thought that I will say I am comfortable with them or that thing determining truth for me. Game five of the 56 World Series. Larson's performance was, it was good. It was really good. It was adequate, sufficient. It was good enough. But it still was not technically perfect. The Bible, on the other hand, it is perfect in every way. It tells us maybe not all we want to know, but everything that we need to know. And it does so in a way that is free of error. We never have to read any portion of Scripture and wonder, man, is this true? Proverbs 30 tells us every word of God proves true. Not just claims to be true, but in life practically proves that it is. Do you believe that? Do you believe the Bible speaks with authority? And if your answer is yes, then you know you're actually left with another question. Alright, if I believe it's true, how then am I to use the Bible? So I'll tell you all a story about me. Um, when I was 20 years old, I decided that I needed to own a motorcycle. Not just any motorcycle, it's got to be a Harley, right? So. I look around, look for a deal, figure out what I want to buy, and I end up in a dealership where I make the decision I'm going to buy this brand new out-of-the-box 883 Sportster. I cut him a check, I sign the papers, I take ownership, and there's one small problem. I don't know how to ride it. In my, uh, seriously, in my infinite wisdom, I spent thousands of dollars on this machine that I couldn't actually operate. Like I'd rode bikes before, but they're all automatics and I'm like riding around out in the field. But now like I'm going to have to like operate the clutch and shift and like it's a whole new world for me. Okay. So I have a friend and he's like, I'll tell you what, I won't ride at home. I won't take the maiden voyage. We'll, uh, we'll take my trailer. We'll load it up there. So we load it up, take it to my parents' house. He unloads it and there he like starts showing me some of the basics like this is kind of how this works, like clutch, taking off, shifting, all these things. So I started practicing in my parents' yard, all these basic things he had showed me. And pretty soon I felt ready, like I'm ready to take this show on the road, quite literally. And that was a terrible idea because I wasn't ready. Like I could kind of know when to shift, right? Um, Most of the time I could take off without killing it. I could take most corners, kind of, and I could do a decent job of judging like, oh, it'll take me this long to stop and not rear in this person. Okay. I was dangerous. That's that's the truth of it. Okay, this was a terrible idea, and because I wasn't really ready, one of my first rides, I put the thing in a ditch. It's cool. Me and the bike were both okay. The only thing hurt was my ego. But you know, whenever I bought the bike, I'm sitting across the desk from this dude, and he's like, "So you rode before?" I was like, "Well, kinda." And I give him the rundown of my experience. He's like, "Okay," and you can see this concerned look. He's like. Well, in your manual, it's got some like, it'll give you some good like pointers on road riding. I was like, okay. He's like, you know, we offer classes for people like you. Like we will teach you these basics, let you practice them so it's safer for everyone. My friend gave me a rundown of all these things. He's like, these are vital to know. All these people are like, look, man, this is great. This thing can be really fun and enjoyable. This can be a good thing. But, But first, you need to know how to use this in the correct way. You know, this is true of the Bible, too. It needs to be used in the correct way. It needs to be used as God has intended for us to use it. So this means a couple things for us. First, it means whenever we read the Bible, we have to follow the most important rule. Scripture interprets Scripture. You ever read the Bible? How many minutes did it take you before you're like, I don't know what that means. That's really hard to understand. I don't understand why there's four pages of genealogies here. What are the Nepha something in Genesis, right? Like, you've probably come to things, you're like, I don't even know what to do with this. You know, the Bible actually acknowledges there's some stuff in here that's tough. 2 Peter 3, Peter writing a letter to church people was like, hey, I know Paul's written you some letters, some of that stuff, yeah, good luck. And so we go to the parts of the Bible that are more clear and easier to understand to help interpret the ones that are hard. That's the first thing it means. Scripture interprets Scripture. We have to follow this very important rule. The second is this. We can't pull out random verses and make them mean what we want them to. So that same verse I just mentioned from 2 Peter, you know what goes on to say? That people will twist the Scriptures, but that they do it to their own destruction. And this is done all the time taking random verses out and making them mean what we want is really common. Like, how many times have you heard Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ, right, right? And how many times have you heard people like, I'm owning this as my own, which means I put my faith in Jesus, I can do whatever I want, he's going to help me. That's not true. Like, if you got cut from your JV team and you're 5, 6, and 30 years old, Pro ball is probably not in your future. Or if you were were the kid who scored a 16 on the ACT on your math and science and not a 27 like Claire Bacon did. Close enough, right? You're probably not going to be a neurosurgeon. Just saying. You can pray and claim that verse as much as you want, but that's not what it's saying. But we have to interpret verses in their context and also in the framework of the Bible as a whole. And we have to follow the tradition that the church has followed for centuries. Meaning, if you read the Bible, you're like, I found a new meaning. Friend, you have misinterpreted it and made it something God didn't intend for it to say. Look, the Bible is authoritative. But have you ever seen authority be misused? Man, people get hurt and taken advantage of. God never misuses His authority, and so we must be careful not to misuse the authoritative word that He has given us. So y'all, look, as we interpret the Bible, especially as we come to difficult passages, let's use the resources we've been given. Study Bibles and commentaries, and most importantly, the people that are sitting next to you right now. Are there Christians in the church? Ask. Ask. Ask for help. Ask a person sitting next to you. Ask one of your leaders. Dude, one of my favorite things is whenever people ask. So it's like, cool. You are intellectually engaging with this. You, are, you at least have the question. You want to know. It's one of my favorite things. And you know what? It's not just helpful for the person you ask, or helpful for you. It's helpful for the person you ask to. As they have to think through this. As they have to articulate it. As they get to be reminded, this is what God has said. So if you get stuck, ask. Ask, how does this verse or this topic fit in the overall story of the Bible? But this does mean that you will need to be plugged into a church. Because we're never meant to take the Bible into our closets, read it, and interpret it all on our own. We are to read it on our own, but we are to do so in the context of being connected to the community of believers. Because Ephesians 3.10 tells us that it's through the church God makes His manifold wisdom known. Friends, let's follow these rules of interpreting the Scripture so you don't do, metaphorically, what I did and put it in the ditch, the ditch of heresy. And as we read, let's remember, we are reading a story, an overarching story. We are reading God's rescue story that follows this arc of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Keeping these things in mind will help us better think through and understand the word that God has given us. But as we close, let's think again about the good news that the Bible gives to us. I mean, apart from the scriptures, you may know something about yourself. You may know that you are a sinner. You may know that you do things that are wrong. You may have this inherent guilt. But the scripture alone contains the good news of the gospel. The Scripture alone tells us this is how your sins can be atoned for. This is how your guilt can be removed. This is how you can have perfection, the perfection of God Himself credited to your account. The Bible alone is where we find the Gospel. The good news that Christ, that the Son of God, the eternal God, Took on flesh to dwell among us, that he lived perfectly, that he willingly laid down his life as a sacrifice for all those that would ever be his, that he had the wrath of the Father poured out on him and that he suffered death for a time, that he went into the tomb but that he did not stay there, that he arose and ascended into heaven and even now sits at the Father's right hand where he is making intercession for us in this moment. And that he holds out great hope for us. That one day we will be resurrected, bodies and souls reunited, glorified, made new and perfect and better and lacking in nothing. That we will get to live in the new heavens and the new earth, beholding the glory of God for all eternity. This is the good news, friends, that the Bible alone can tell us. And in between this time of being what the Bible would call justified or saved or reconciled to God, and this hope that we will one day live in this place. In between these, God has given us His Word to tell us this is how you live in relationship with me and yourself and others and the world that I have given you. I have given you my Word, and it speaks with great authority to every aspect of your life. But the question that we all must answer is will we trust it? Will we trust that the Bible really does what it claims to do? That it really is profitable for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training. Friends, who will you trust? Will you trust the perfect, sufficient, inerrant Word of God to be your only rule for faith and practice, for the only guide to your life? Or will you ultimately trust yourself? This is the question that we all actually are answering every day, whether you're aware of it or not. Let us be conscious of what our answer is and let us be intentional about better knowing what our God has said to us in his inherent word. Let's pray together. God, we love you, man. We thank you that you have given us your word. Um, I pray that you would give us faith to believe that the Bible really is what you tell us it is. Pray that you would give us um, eyes to see it more clearly ears to hear it. Pray that you would give us the courage to, um, Ask questions when we don't know. God, please um, remind us that it is a process that is lifelong and never complete, this process of learning more of who you are and who we are. Amen, we thank you for this time. Amen, we thank you that you are patient with us and love us. We thank you that you love us where we are, but that you love us too much to leave us there. We pray now... Um, That you would bless these elements, set them aside, bring all this before the throne in Christ's name. Amen. The Apostle Paul writes.